This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. I remember this night about 10 years ago. I was walking down this brick street in Charlottesville, Virginia, where no cars are allowed. So there are big trees where there used to be traffic. And there are tons of bars and restaurants with outdoor seating. It was a perfect summer night, and the whole place was packed with beautiful young people out having a good time. People about my age. Part of me wanted to grab a drink and join them. But this much bigger part of me wanted to flip over a table and scream. Do you have any fucking idea there's a war going on? We all know how the Afghanistan war ends now. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. The Afghan government and security forces collapse under a Taliban advance. Fear and pandemonium outside Kabul airport. Taliban fighters have flooded the capital. Afghan officials say troops have surrendered Bagram Air Base to the Taliban. We just learned that the presidential palace was officially handed over to the Taliban. The president, maybe former president now, Ashraf Ghani, leaves town. Taliban fighters behind uh, the desk of the presidential palace. I did not, nor did anyone else, see a collapse of an army that size in 11 days. Seeing the images of Afghans hugging the landing gear of an Air Force C-17 as it lifted off from Kabul, it's impossible not to remember the Americans plummeting from the burning towers almost exactly 20 years earlier. And you can see the two towers, a huge explosion now raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! And for a lot of people, these images are going to be the gruesome bookends to America's longest war. But me, I'm stuck between the bookends. I'm Elliot Woods. I'm a veteran and a journalist. And there's this one embed I did back in 2011 that I can't stop thinking about. In a part of Afghanistan called Sangin, with a squad of strung-out Marines who lived in mud-brick buildings surrounded by barriers filled with dirt and rocks. It was my fourth embed in Afghanistan in two years, and I didn't know it at the time, but it would also be my last. And I could never have known that I was documenting the final days of one of those Marines. This is the story of that Marine and his squad, Third Squad. Episode one, keep pushing. I landed in Sangin on a V-22 Osprey in July 2011 and took an armored gun truck out to a dusty outpost. That's where I met the 12 Marines of Third Squad for the first time. My name is Jeffrey Lopez, Scott McCatchen, David Polsky, David Ortega, Brian Shear, Michael Miner, Derek Fry, Taylor Moody, Emmanuel Mendoza, Matthew Ford, John Bollinger, Michael Joseph Dutcher. They were officially 3rd Squad, 1st Platoon, Blackfoot Company, from the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, or 1-5 for short. They were infantry, the riflemen and machine gunners known in the Corps as grunts. And their home base was Camp Pendleton, California. But they came from all over the United States. Venice City, New Jersey. Pleasanton, California. Well, Hawaii. Beaumont, California. Rapid City, South Dakota. Seagrove, North Carolina. Cheyenne, Wyoming. Irwin, Pennsylvania. Watertown, New York. Mexico, Texas. Stone Park, Illinois. Asheville, North Carolina. 
Most of them were fresh out of high school, and I could hardly believe how young they looked. They could be sitting in this tree line right here just waiting for us to fucking push out of the open and light us the fuck up. I'm gonna shoot this dude if he fucking comes over. They were at war, but they still acted like kids sometimes. Where the guy is running to? To the left of building the seven. The left of building Stop seven. Yelling. So fucking. I'm not fucking yelling. You're all angry and stuff. You need a hug? No, I'm going in fucking patient. You're they, making, uh, you're you're making my combat recording sound really immature. <laughs> this is supposed to be war, guys. My bad. <laughs> I brought an old film camera with me to take their portraits, and I also brought an audio recorder. And whenever we had a break between patrols and sleeping, I'd try to pull one of them aside for a sit-down interview in one of those stuffy mud brick rooms. Which wasn't always easy. All right, go. My name is H.M. Matthew Ford, and I was born in Stone... So, from this point forward, if you guys are going to stay in here, I need you to make as little noise as possible. Okay? So no Velcro. No farting. Can you handle that? They were bone-tired, and they didn't always know quite what to make of me or my questions. But they were cool. I guess I was a welcome diversion. So is it fun? Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun. It, it's the kind of fun where you get really wasted one night and you do a bunch of stupid shit, and it's fun to talk about. <laughs> firefights are fun. I enjoy firefights. You drop bombs on people and kill bad men. That's, that's what we're here for. Still, it didn't take me long to see that the excitement barely covered up the dread. If you could describe Sangin in a couple of sentences, what would you say? Probably one of the worst places on earth right now. I could hear the stress and exhaustion in their voices. They were far from home and in full-blown survival mode. And all they had was each other. Everything you do out here is for your fellow Marines and yourself. I love my Marines. Those are my boys. And I just don't want anything to happen to them. I want to keep them as safe as I possibly can in what I'd like to consider the most, probably one of the most dangerous places on earth. Sangin is a rural district in southern Afghanistan's Helmand province, which shares its name with a wide river that forms way up in the Hindu Kush mountains. Most of Helmand is a scorched wasteland, but the river cuts a sliver of green from north to south across the desert. It's a lifeline to Sangin's farmers, whose main cash crop is poppy, the key ingredient in heroin. And when 3rd Squad first showed up in Sangin, the scenery kind of blew their minds. Everybody thinks, you know, when they think of Afghanistan, they think the Middle East. They think of some big, giant, hot desert. But, like, it's not like that. You wouldn't expect how green it is. When you get out here, it's amazing that you see flowers blooming everywhere, big fields of green crops and grass and trees. The reeds now are 12 feet tall, and there's bamboo that's even taller than that. Like, you just walk across open, huge fields like you would see, like, uh, been to France before? Yeah. You see all those huge open fields they have there? Yeah. It's kind of like, take that, the swampy shit, and mix it together, and you got saying in Afghanistan. It looks like a beautiful country, but as far as stepping out the wire with all your gear, it's shitty. I get cursed, right? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Yeah, that's, that's about it. I can't really explain it somewhere you don't want to be. The situation in Sangin was terrible. Hundreds of British, Afghan, and American troops had been killed and wounded. The war was in its 10th year, and what had begun as a straightforward mission to hunt down and kill Osama bin Laden and members of Al-Qaeda after 9-11 had morphed into a complicated nation-building effort in a raging battle against the Taliban. We'll get into why that shift happened later in the series. For now, you just need to know that at this particular moment, Afghanistan was spiraling out of control. And President Barack Obama had deployed tens of thousands of extra troops in a bid to turn the war around. The situation in Afghanistan has deteriorated. This phase of the war became known as the Afghanistan Surge, and 3rd Squad deployed at its peak. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. Third Squad was tasked with carrying out the surge strategy at whatever cost. But the big picture was barely visible from their perspective. And that's the perspective I went there to report on. The Third Squad Marines all had their own reasons for joining the Corps. So, number one, why did you join the Marine Corps? I joined the Marines because the Marines are the best. They're badass. 
This is Private First Class Scott McKetchen, a 20-year-old college dropout from Northern California. Tell me a little bit about, just very briefly, about the kid that you were that, that didn't do so high in college, because I was actually that kid, too. I was a kid in college that just wanted to party, didn't care too much about school, or think what I could possibly lose if I were to just do nothing but party. And sure enough, I lost it, but I fucking manned up and I joined the military. And here I am, staying in Afghanistan. Lance Corporal David Ortega, a 20-year-old from Southern California, came from a military family. He was so nervous when he talked to me, his voice trembled. I would just always look up to the Marines and I was like, I'm going to become one of them someday. I'm going to keep introducing you to the squad, but don't worry about keeping track of all the names. You'll get to know the guys throughout the series. Lance Corporal Taylor Moody was also 20 years old. He was from upstate New York. He was rail thin and his hair was trimmed close on the sides in line with Marine Corps regs. But he hadn't always looked like that. Back in the States, uh, when I was in high school, I was this little punk. I had a mohawk that was like a foot long and I dyed it red. <laughs> I went to concerts all the time and I used to brag about how good I was at moshing. And I was pretty good, you know, I, I did my shit. You know what moshing is, right? Okay. You know, I, I beat the shit out of some guys in a mosh pit, but that's, that's not important to me anymore. The only thing right now that matters to me is getting home alive with as many guys as I can. Corporal Manuel Mendoza told me he was a responsible kid who worked three jobs during high school in the East Texas border town where he grew up. He was 20 when I met him, which means he was still in elementary school when 9-11 happened. I'll never forget September 11th. I'll never forget what happened in New York. And I'll never forget people that were hurt, people that died. I love my country. I'm a patriot straight up. Like, even though I'm Mexican, I love, I love America because we got a lot of great things in our country. I have such a great life back home. I got my family. I had a good education, you know, so I felt like I needed to pay that debt. The youngest of the group was 19-year-old Lance Corporal David Richvalski from Waialua, Hawaii. I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to get off the island. Mission accomplished. I live in a fucking mud hut, three feet thick walls of mud. Right now it's actually pretty dirty just because I've been disgusting and not cleaned it. And uh, I got fleas because of the fucking chickens that run around. The sweltering mud brick compound where the squad lived was officially called Patrol Base Fires, but everyone just called it Fires, or PB Fires. It was home to a single platoon of Marines, around 40 guys, plus the various people who supported them. The platoon's three squads took turns patrolling, resting, and pulling watch. Southern Afghanistan was a furnace that July. The heat made my lips crack and the dry air burned the inside of my nose when I inhaled. Hygienically, it's, there is none. You're constantly dirty. 20-year-old Lance Corporal Brian Shearer was from Rapid City, South Dakota. He wanted to join the Marines ever since he was a little kid. And now, here he was, embracing the suck. You get really bad trench foot from being in uh, water all day and then you stay in your socks. And you can never get your feet dry or clean. The guys bathed by poking holes in water bottles and squeezing them over their heads. Whenever there was time to rest, they sacked out on cots and played video games or watched DVDs on little personal players. When I arrived, they were all stoked because they'd just gotten lights. But there was still much to be desired. The things I miss the most back in the United States are definitely women, drinking, good food, having the luxury of electricity, running water all the time. Just simple shit, going taking a crap in a fucking toilet that flushes. Um, come out here and you lose everything and then you realize what you really had back in the United States. Food was something the guys talked about a lot. So much that I'm surprised they weren't hiding copies of Bon Appetit under their cots instead of nudie mags. Pickens around the patrol base could be pretty slim. So what do you eat? Um, what, you like to, what, you, what you like to eat? Well, it's not what I like to eat, it's what I have to eat, and most of the time it's, it's just like a can of spaghetti or 
a thing of ramen noodles heated up in the sun somewhere. 22-year-old Lance Corporal Jeffrey Lopez was small but scrappy looking. He craved the comfort food of the Jersey Shore where he grew up. I miss McDonald's, Applebee's, um, all-you-can-eat crabs at like the Bayside Buffet. The food at Patrol Base Fires was, well, it sure as fuck was not the Bayside Buffet. I didn't notice it at first, but uh, the other Marines in my squad noticed, and some, even, other, even other squads noticed. I had lost a shit ton of weight, and you can see yourself that I'm extremely skinny. And then I just kept losing more and more weight. All I could do was think of food. And that's still all I do is I think of food. Like, on patrol, we'll take a quick break every now and then. I'll just be sitting there thinking, God, I'm so fucking hungry. (laughs) It wasn't just the food from home that they missed. I mean, none of us have seen our families in almost a year now. None of us have been back home in almost a year now. I told you 3rd Squad had been in Afghanistan for four months when I arrived. But they'd trained constantly during the workup period leading up to the deployment, with almost no downtime. Some of them had girlfriends, wives, even kids waiting for them back in the States. They were homesick, but it was more than that. They were worried they might never see their families again. Really looking forward to getting back home, being able to just relax with the family, and just not having to worry on a day-to-day basis as to whether or not you're going to get hurt badly that day. So, I mean, civilians don't wake up in the morning and say, huh, am I going to lose my legs today or die today? For most of 3rd Squad, Sangam was their first deployment. And before they got there, they'd heard horror stories about what it was like. Their predecessors at patrol base fires were from the 3rd Battalion 5th Marine Regiment, or 3-5, also from Camp Pendleton. 3-5 had a horrendous time in Sangin. Over their seven-month tour, 25 of their Marines died and 184 were wounded. That's about one out of every five Marines in the battalion. It was the worst casualty rate of any single unit in the Afghanistan war up to that point. Many of those casualties were caused by the Taliban's weapon of choice in Sangin, the pressure plate improvised explosive device, or IED, a homemade landmine that detonates when someone steps on it. Mines and IEDs are ingenious knowing that you can step right next to one or sit right with one between your legs and you have no idea it's ever there until someone steps on it and dies. News of 3-5's bloody tour spread through Camp Pendleton while 3rd Squad was training to deploy. It was like every day it seemed like 3-5 was taking casualties, especially corpsmen. It seemed like they were losing corpsmen left and right. Corpsmen are U.S. Navy sailors who provide medical aid to wounded Marines in combat. In the Army, they're called medics. Third Squad's corpsman was 25-year-old hospitalman first-class Matthew Forrett from the Chicago suburbs. The guys called him Doc, and he wore a few different hats. I'm also kind of like, you know, part therapist, part fucking nurse, part counselor. Forrett was a little softer than the Marines, with a round face and buzzed red hair. He told me about the handoff with 3-5. When I got here, only like two of the original corpsmen remained. Everybody else had either been, like, blown up or shot or something. So, yeah, when I got here, I was paranoid as hell. And for it wasn't the only one. 20-year-old Lance Corporal John Bollinger from Cheyenne, Wyoming, had also prepared himself for the worst. When we first were coming, I was honestly expecting, like, you couldn't couldn't move without hitting an IED and all there were were Taliban everywhere and everyone's, you know, getting shot and blown up. That was, that was my expectation, was fucking, that it was going to be popping off. But when 3rd Squad got to Sangin and settled into their new home at Patrol Base Fires, everything was weirdly calm. For the first two months, Sangin didn't really meet my expectations at all. Like, we were just basically just patrolling for the shit of it. Like, nothing happened for the first two months. There was no fire, there was no shooting or anything. It was just straight up walking around like we own the place. That's Taylor Moody again, the mosh pit menace, telling me what it was like when the squad first started going out on patrol. Uh, when we first got here, the people wouldn't even come out to us because uh, the previous unit was pretty rough on them. Then we started doing the coin operations and just talking with the people, you know, getting to know what was going on, asking them questions, looking for the enemy so we can exploit what they're doing against them. 
COIN, that acronym Moody just used, stands for counterinsurgency. The basic idea of COIN is to drive a wedge between insurgents and the civilian population by delivering humanitarian aid. Things like new roads, medicine, and schools. Basically, trying to buy the local people's love so they'll reject the insurgency, in this case, the Taliban, and support the legitimate government instead. COIN is supposed to be more about protecting the people than killing the enemy. Back in the Vietnam War, they called it winning hearts and minds. Sounds good in theory, but during the surge in Afghanistan, it was young frontline troops like 3rd Squad who carried out most of the work. And they didn't really have the training or the resources to do it. They were grunts, not diplomats. Our typical day is, you know, wake up very early, probably earlier than the average American, strap on a flak that weighs 30 pounds because it's got bulletproof plates in it. On top of that, put a pack on your back. You have rounds that weigh a lot. You have a rifle. I carry my rocket launcher that weighs 30 pounds. So I carry a lot of weight, patrol all day, walking, walking through creeks, mud, canals, water, rivers, tall grass, cornfields, and it just gets really tiring. Carrying all that weight and body armor, weapons, and ammunition gave them a firepower advantage over the lightly armed Taliban, but it beat the shit out of their bodies. A 20-year-old Marine can look like he's 30. Maybe not, not maybe, maybe not in facial features, and it, like some people, some of us can't grow full beards and stuff. But our knees will be so jam-packed, and the cartilage will be ripped up, and our feet will be callous, like I don't know, like some dog's feet or something like little pads or whatever. Those grueling foot patrols were 3rd Squad's only real opportunity to talk to the local people, one of the most critical elements of counterinsurgency. But the Taliban were out there too, hiding in the green fields and tree lines surrounding PB fires, waiting to ambush the Marines. Sometimes the enemy fighters and lookouts would hide in plain sight. Dressing them up to match the population is like crazy smart because you don't know who they are and they could be watching at any point they could be shaking your hand at any point my first afternoon at pb fires i went out on patrol with third squad and their platoon commander almost as soon as we left the compound gate we were hip deep in a canal the cool water felt good in the heat but as soon as i climbed out i was conscious of every step There was a Marine at the front of the patrol with a metal detector sweeping for IEDs, and another one behind him marking the cleared path with a can of blue spray chalk. I stayed glued to those blue streaks. Eventually, the patrol stopped to talk to a farmer who had knee-high corn in his fields and a few cows tethered by nose rings. Hey, uh, signal traffic to Sergeant Uh, I'm engaged with the local right now, getting a lot of good intel, over. They were trying to gather information about the Taliban. Yeah. The three brothers, they are living tour. They live with him? Yeah, in the Pengshir village. At the end of there is a compound, the end of the compound they are living. The man told them, through an interpreter, that the Marines were not the only ones visiting his home. This the you are coming, but the night Taliban came. Okay, so the night the Taliban yeah. come? It was risky for the man to talk to the Marines. Anyone caught helping the Americans could be punished by the Taliban. Uh, five days ago, says the Taliban kidnapped three people down there. The longer the squad stayed, the more likely they'd be spotted by the enemy. They were walking the fine line between doing their jobs and putting people in danger. Hey, hold him. Don't let him come back here because we're talking to this guy. And if this guy gets seen with someone, he's going to get in trouble. So stop that kid. Don't let him back here yet. We'll come to him. It was a lot of responsibility for the Marines. But the IEDs that had devastated the previous battalion were still out there. And they did more than damage flesh. They severely inhibited the Marines' movement, making it almost impossible to do counterinsurgency. They had to find them. That's how far they... Yeah. And, and we saw the two Taliban out here. Were they planting IEDs? Today, sir? Today. Yes, yeah. none. We saw two of them in the tree line. Then they came back. Yeah, that's good, yeah. That's, that's it, them? yeah. That's the Taliban. Sometimes, the intelligence gathering paid off. Roger, we copy, break. And we found a secondary about uh, 10 meters to the southwest of the uh, first one we found. Uh, as we were pushing back, we saw it. 15 seconds, 15 seconds. They found a cluster of IEDs and detonated them safely. Oh my god, god damn, I'm glad that didn't go off. 
It was a small victory in the bigger war. Out on patrol, everyone in the squad looked more or less the same. They all wore desert camouflage uniforms and Kevlar helmets and wraparound sunglasses. And they wore body armor, weighed down by ammunition pouches and first aid kits and water. But each person had a slightly different job. The radio operator maintained comms with the patrol base. Then there were the riflemen and the machine gunners. The assault men carried things like rocket launchers, and the corpsmen cared for the wounded. Then there was the combat engineer, the one who walked up front with the metal detector to scan the path for IEDs. This job was called sweeper, and it was one of the most dangerous jobs in the entire war. Those guys, you, you know they're going to get, like if you sweep, you're going to get hit eventually. Like, you don't want them to get hit, but there's a good chance they're going to get hit. On patrol, everybody walked single file behind the sweeper, following his exact path. You move real slow, you pretty much you move at the sweeper's pace. You can't go any faster than that. At 25, Corporal Michael Miner from Seagrove, North Carolina, was the oldest member of 3rd Squad. He had two deployments to Iraq under his belt before Sangin. Miner told me the Taliban didn't just wait around for the Marines to step on IEDs. They'll hide in tree lines, wait for us, uh, shoot at us that way. They'll try to draw us into IEDs. The danger the Marines confronted outside the patrol base was extreme, and it came with a heavy dose of fear. So how often do you think about your legs and your feet? <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Tell me about that a little bit. You, you think about it and you're walking around, you're stomping through all the cornfields and the friggin' weeds and the tree lines and the canals, and you're just thinking, damn. That could be an IED right there. Do you ever, I mean, this is kind of a weird question, but I'm only asking this because when I found out that I was going to be coming to Sangin several months ago, I started thinking about it more and more and more. And every time I'd go for a run or I'd go for a hike or I'd get on my bike, I'd be looking down at my legs and <laughs> be thinking, I really like running. I really like biking. I really like walking. I mean, do you ever imagine what life would be like without legs? Yeah, I do, I do all the time, but right now, we just make jokes about it, you know, like, you can, you see it all the time, you know, people lose their legs, and you have to help them out, and then, you know, you think about yours, and you're just like, man, I can just imagine going back to Leatherneck, or going to Germany, and getting surgery, and then finally I'm all healed up, and I get my little tink-tink legs, is what we call them, our little metal legs, <laughs> we talk about jokes, and, you know, like, I think swimming would be so much easier. We just attach paddles to our little metal legs. <laughs> well, you know, we don't have to do that. And get those fucking, those balancey legs we see on TV all the time that guys have. Just run a little faster. You know, it's, it's all about making jokes out here. If you don't make jokes, then it's just going to be, it'll be too grim. Yeah. There wouldn't be any happiness out here. Third Squad's first months at PB Fires were unusually happy. It was calm enough that the Marines started to wonder if they'd missed the war. But this was the cruelest of deceptions. And the calm was shattered one day in June. We'll be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were here for three months, and I was just like, oh, we're good. We're getting out of here. This place is done. Well, three five secured it. We're, we're golden. And then I was sitting in this exact same room, and then all of a sudden we heard a big boom. And then my squad leader, Sergeant C, comes running in and says, one, two, got hit. It was June 9th, 2011. David Ortega and the rest of 3rd Squad were at PB Fires when they got the news that another squad, 2nd Squad, had suffered a casualty. Lance Corporal Nicholas O'Brien was a rifleman, but he'd been filling in for the engineer that day. He was sweeping for IEDs when he stepped on one and was killed. And I was just like, fuck. I, I didn't even know what to think. O'Brien may not have been in 3rd Squad, but that didn't matter. He was part of 1st Platoon, one of the 40-odd guys they had trained with at Camp Pendleton and had been living with at PB Fires for months. And the whole platoon was tight. O'Brien was someone that anybody could be friends with him. Best personality in the world, always making people laugh. And he was just a great person to be around, and he was to always have your back no matter what. Every day I notice his absence. It's hard to see that he's gone. O'Brien had a reputation around the patrol base for being generous with his care packages. He was also known for his outspoken North Carolina pride. He'd just turned 21, and his death rattled the younger guys who were on their first deployment. Even for Michael Miner, who'd been to combat before, it was a wake-up call. You've been around. Yeah. You're 25 years old, but you're a fucking granddad compared to these kids. That's basically what I'm trying to say. So what's it like seeing some of these... You know, young kids go through this when you have as much experience as you do. I came to this already knowing what to expect a little bit. These guys had no fucking idea. Miner and O'Brien had bonded over their shared North Carolina roots. His death forced Miner to remember a lesson he learned back in Iraq. Get close, but not too close. That way you have no emotional attachments to anybody around, because you never know when their time is. So feeling-wise... I'm about to come off as a cold-hearted motherfucker because I really don't see the difference. It would be wildly wrong to say that 3rd Squad hadn't taken the threat in Sangin seriously before O'Brien died. They all knew how badly 3-5 had gotten hammered, and there had been casualties elsewhere in Sangin since they arrived. But they weren't close to those guys. O'Brien, though, O'Brien was their brother. His death made shit very real. But it wasn't like they could sit around and dwell on it. We just, one of those things, you just got to keep going, no matter what. Situation may be bad, but just keep pushing. Keep pushing. It was the only option. Three days after O'Brien died, 3rd Squad headed out from PB Fires to help another platoon, 3rd Platoon, from a nearby patrol base. They got the uh, Taliban held in a building, and they were there for uh, over a day, just in a shootout with them. And we were going up to resupply them. Everyone had full packs, main packs of water and chow. We were going up. They'd been in contact pretty much all day. And they are obviously out because you get in a firefight for that long, you run out of rounds and you get thirsty. And we all started pushing up, pushing up. A few guys made it across the bridge. We were crossing a bridge that we crossed every day. 
we're just walking along. Everyone, every, it was just a normal patrol. Everyone was just bullshitting and talking. And we were about uh, 200 meters outside of fires. The only blind spot from uh, that post. And then um, there was just The IED went off and it was just a smoke cloud. I was like in the back of the patrol when we first heard the explosion. I saw this big ass, huge uh, 60 foot mushroom cloud just shoot up in the air. McDaniels struck the first IED. Lance Corporal Joshua McDaniels was Third Squad's combat engineer. He was up front sweeping when he stepped on an IED that launched him straight up into the air. The blast hit several of the other Marines around him, including David Richvalski. It's about a 20-pound IED. I was maybe like 15 meters away from that one. Just knocked me on my ass. As the dust cleared, the deafening boom gave way to screams. It was the scariest, scariest moment, as well as the worst moment in my life. That's definitely the, the scariest moment. The squad scrambled to respond. The first thing I did, I just sprinted towards the front of the patrol. I got up. Uh, started pulling out tourniquets. A tourniquet is a belt that slips around a limb and can be cranked super tight to stop arterial bleeding, a common cause of death after an IED strike. Everyone carried tourniquets on patrol, not just the corpsman. Ran up over there and started trying to work on him, but he was straight up blown in half. Like he was probably about just gone, like his whole half of his body was gone. So there wasn't really much places to put a tourniquet. So I just started talking to him because he was screaming. And uh, I was like holding his hand, like telling him it was going to be okay. And that's when Lance Corporal Elliott stepped on the uh, second IED. In the chaos, Lance Corporal Cody Elliott, a machine gunner who floated between squads, stepped on another IED. The blast took down everyone around him, including Rich Volsky. I blacked out after that. The corpsman, Doc Forrett, also got hit as he was rushing up to treat casualties of the first IED. When I got blown up, I stumbled for a little bit, like, like I lost my hearing for a couple of seconds. I kind of fell straight to my knees. I didn't black out, but I just kind of sat there confused for a couple of seconds, just wondering what the hell was going on. When the dust cleared, the, the dude who was in front of me, Lance Corporal Elliott, I just saw his entire face was just covered in blood. First thing I did, I just looked down to make sure I was still okay, make sure I still had my legs and arms, and then I just went straight to McDaniels. McDaniels was for its first real-world casualty. When I got to him, his legs were gone almost, uh, at least the flesh around his legs were gone almost up to his waist. Like pretty much like, I would say six inches below his hip was like where it had stopped and everything else below that was just bone. But I tried getting the tourniquets on him, even like the metal one, I had a little bit of difficulty just trying to get it on because it was like slipping off his leg almost. And I like I applied like three tourniquets on his right leg and one metal one on his left leg, which had a little bit more flesh on it than the other one. For it completed about a year of specialized training to get ready for that moment. But no amount of simulation could have fully prepared him. I was just basically like constantly saying to myself, fuck my life over and over again. He worked frantically over the gaping hole below McDaniel's waist. I just began stuffing it with as much gauze and combat gauze that I had just to try to get the bleeding stopped. But it wasn't working. He had lost too much blood and he was starting to go into unconsciousness and starting to lose a pulse. For it stuck McDaniel's with an EpiPen in a last-ditch effort to boost his heart rate. And then we got him on the bird. McDaniels still had a pulse when the Marines loaded him onto a medevac helicopter. Meanwhile, the walking wounded started picking themselves up off the ground. When I came to, I was just laying face down in the sand, just like in a puddle of blood. Richvalski had been knocked hard by the second IED. So had Brian Shear. It was just nothing but smoke, and I, uh... I walked out of the smoke, I saw that I still had all my limbs, and I just, it's just instinct, I just turned around and ran right back in, and uh, that's when I saw Rajvalski laying there in the, in the hole, and 
I turned him over, and he was bleeding from the side of his face. And uh, I checked to make sure he wasn't bleeding underneath his flak to where I couldn't see. Shear, Lance Corporal Shear, rolled me over and he goes, Hey man, you got all your limbs, you got your legs, I don't know how you did it. He's like, you're going to be okay? And I was like, what? Because like, I, I, I had a severe concussion. Um, like I just got knocked straight retarded. And then uh, he started dragging me out. He was out of it. He was really out of it. And I didn't want him fucking walking off or anything. So I grabbed him and I pulled him back across the, uh, back across the bridge and got him back to, um, got him back to safety. I had a piece of shrapnel about the size of a dime lodged in my temple. And I had uh, some more just frag and stuff in my shoulder. And uh, pretty much the whole right side of my body was like a road rash. So I just fell on a skateboard, slid for about 10 feet. <laughs> my face was just like a burger, <laughs> like nasty burger. <laughs> While all this was going on, Manuel Mendoza pulled security to make sure no one tried to ambush them. But he still caught glimpses of the carnage. I wasn't expecting the blood. Uh, bones dangling everywhere. I wasn't expecting that. I was hoping I wouldn't have to see that, but I did. Two more IEDs went off before the day was out. And the Marines found and safely destroyed five more. To realize that the Taliban could plant nine IEDs right under their noses, buried behind a stand of trees just 200 yards from the guard posts of PB fires, it was a rude awakening. All told, 17 men got hit on June 12th. Three went home with missing limbs. And Joshua McDaniels, who they'd put on the medevac bird with a pulse, the guys found out later he didn't make it. McDaniels had been captain of his high school football team back in London, Ohio. He liked to drive around in an old Mercedes-Benz blasting the Star-Spangled Banner. He was 21 when he died, and he left behind a young widow. As for the Taliban, they were just getting started. Then after that, we started getting hit. You know, IEDs, fucking bolts started whizzing all over the place. That's when we realized we didn't really own the place. We couldn't just walk around like we were friggin' invincible. Just three days later, on June 15th, seven more 1st Platoon Marines got blown up in another multiple IED mass casualty. The Marines started calling it the Curse of June. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The June curse happened before I arrived in Sangin. So I never met O'Brien or McDaniels. In fact, I never met a bunch of the Marines who'd been at PB fires before I got there in July. Close to half the guys who began the deployment had been wounded by then, and a lot of them got sent home for good to recover, including Sergeant Andrew Ski Matelski, 3rd Squad's original squad leader. For the ones who were left, there was only one option. Keep pushing. At first, it's fucking, it's like, it just hurts. But then uh, over time, over time, you get over it, and uh, you just learn that you have to keep pushing, and you just start to get numb to everything, you know? Someone gets hit, and it's just someone getting hit, you know? Like, if they survive, they're going back to the States. If they're dead, at least they're not here. The three mass casualty incidents of the June curse rendered 1st Platoon combat ineffective. Too short-handed and thin on leadership to go into combat. So the higher-ups decided to pull 1st Platoon back to a bigger base while they shuffled people around and waited for fresh bodies from back home. When I got to patrol base fires in late July, the platoon was reinforced and back in action. But the lineup was a little different. 3rd Squad had two new faces. One of those new 3rd Squad faces was Sergeant Jarek Fry, a 24-year-old combat replacement from Irwin, Pennsylvania who took over for the critically injured Sergeant Ski as squad leader. If one person in the team's weak, or in the squad's weak, the squad will fail. So everybody has to pull their own weight, everybody has to know their job, the job below them and the job above them. The other new face was already pretty familiar to the squad. All right, so you're on tape. Wonderful. All right, so first, just what's your full name? Michael Joseph Dutcher. Dutcher was originally in 1st Squad, but he got transferred to 3rd Squad to boost their numbers. Do you have a nickname in the squad? Dutch. You could spot him from across the patrol base because of his dorky standard-issue glasses. Known in the military as BCGs, or birth control goggles. The first thing is, why did you join the Marine Corps? I honestly have no idea anymore. There was something about Dutch that I was drawn to as soon as we started talking. He had the warm drawl of his native Asheville, and with his thick glasses and overgrown buzz, he cut a gentler figure than the other Marines. And he often had a wad of Frank's Red Hot Buffalo Wing-flavored sunflower seeds in his cheek. He passed around the bag to everyone on patrol, including me. If you had to sum up Sangin in one sentence to somebody back home, how would you describe it? I would definitely say keep your eyes out and turn your ears up because paying attention to everything is the only thing you have out here to keep you alive. Dutch was smart and curious in the ways that made for a good counterinsurgency Marine. He'd even learned a bit of Pashto from the interpreters. What do you think the Taliban are fighting for? They call themselves Mujahideen, but uh, they're not really that. A lot of them are doing stuff that doesn't really describe the Muslim way of life, as I've learned about it and heard about it from locals. Mujahideen is the word for Muslim holy warriors. They fight and kill whenever everyone else wouldn't. They do things that Muslims shouldn't and wouldn't do. What's an example of something that you think that Muslims shouldn't do according to their rules but the Taliban do? Their whole murder and intimidation campaign. They threaten locals and their own people. They threaten other Muslims. They emplace IEDs that can kill children. And they're buying and selling drugs that in the end kill mass quantities of people and destroy families. 
On one patrol, I took photos of Dutch using a handheld device to collect biometric data from a middle-aged man wearing a turban. The fingerprints, mugshots, and iris scans were checked against lists of known Taliban insurgents. The man's kids looked on from a doorway with curious smiles on their faces. But the man looked scared. To have Marines bristling with weapons stroll up to your house and ask to scan your eyeballs had to be terrifying, no matter how much they promised they were there to help you. And I knew many locals wished nothing more than for the foreign troops in the Afghan army to go away. Maybe then the fighting would have stopped. I don't know how much of this went through Dutch's mind, but he reminded me of myself before I was a journalist, back when I was an Army National Guard combat engineer. During my own deployment to Iraq in 2004, I learned a bit of Arabic from the interpreters and tried to get to know the Iraqi soldiers. I remember wishing I could go into town and order lunch, hang out, shoot the shit with the locals. But it wasn't a semester abroad, and it wasn't one for Dutch either, though we did have plans to go to college eventually. Are you going to re-enlist? Um, I get out in, get out June 14th, 2012. I'm not going to re-enlist. I'm probably going to do the 90-day early out program and uh, go back to college and get my teaching degree. Since I've joined the Marine Corps, I've decided I want to follow my mom's footsteps and uh, become a teacher because I really like what she does. Right now, I'm just trying to figure out what subject I want to teach. In the short term, all he wanted to do was kick back and relax. The thing I miss most about civilian life in general is uh, definitely weekends. I can't wait to go back, sleep in, and not have to worry about anything. Unlike 3rd Squad, I could return to regular life whenever I wanted. So when my embed was over, I packed up my camera gear and my recorder and flew back to the States. I'd been home from Sangin for a few weeks when the film from that old-school camera came back from the developer. I couldn't wait to see the portraits of 3rd Squad. Scanning the negatives was painstakingly slow. Line by line, the Marines' faces unfurled across the monitor. That's when a Twitter notification from the Department of Defense popped up. I clicked on the link. A Marine had been killed in Sangin. A Marine from 3rd Squad. It was Dutch. Dutch's portrait was lying right there on my desk, next in line for the scanner. I stared at it in disbelief. I couldn't stop thinking about how much he'd been looking forward to getting out. How he'd planned to go back to school and move on with his life. Hole up in some leafy college town to follow the trail of his curiosity wherever it led never having to sweep for IEDs. Sleep in, not have to worry about anything. Dutch was so close to getting out of Sangin. He would have been home in a couple of weeks, back on leave with his family in Asheville. When I go back, I'll tell him the good stuff. What we've done, the friends I've made, what I've done with my friends. It was Dutch and his friends who were on my mind that night in Charlottesville when I was walking past all those safe and happy people smiling over their expensive cocktails. I thought about how devastated they must have been to lose him. Yet another dead friend. And I could imagine how they might feel. The list of my friends who died in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan kept getting longer. And I wasn't sure I could handle any more death after Dutch. I was also starting to feel like my own luck was running out. The fact that I still had my legs and that my mind and my heart were still more or less intact felt like something I shouldn't take for granted. I began to tell myself that it was okay to choose life. So I did. I never went back to the war. But the feeling that I abandoned something has always tortured me. Like I walked away from the most important mission I ever had. It's been 10 years, and now I know that the rage I felt that night was masking something deeper. My profound grief. Grief that's heavier now than ever before. 
Grief for the dead and for the ruined lives, and over the new nightmare that's just beginning in Afghanistan. It may seem like we're right back where we started 20 years ago, but that's forgetting the mountain of tragedy between the bookends. For the U.S., the war in Afghanistan came at a financial cost of over $2 trillion. But that's not the cost that keeps me up at night. I think about the 100,000 Afghans who died in the fighting and the millions who were forced to flee their homes. And I think about the tens of thousands of American troops who came home with physical or psychological wounds and the nearly 2,500 who died. I think about Dutch. Earlier this year, with the 10th anniversary of Dutch's death and the final withdrawal from Afghanistan looming, I started thinking a lot about that mission I abandoned. The mission to use my own experience as a veteran to help Americans understand what it was like on the front lines of a forgotten war. I decided it was finally time to go back. Not to Afghanistan, but to the squad. Third squad. Their story is here now. And the war isn't over for them. It's woven into their lives back home. And for some of them and their families, the war left holes that will never be filled. I recently found out that Dutch had a big plan for when he got home from Sangin. He was going to ride his motorcycle all the way from Camp Pendleton on the Pacific coast, clear across the country to his mom's house in North Carolina. I decided to make the journey that Dutch never got to. I made a plan to drive from coast to coast and to track down Dutch's friends along the way, the third squad Marines, to find out what became of them since we said goodbye in Sangin, to talk about the war and coming home, and to ask, what was it all for? And where do we go from here? Coming up on third squad. I was in my own little world, but once I felt her embrace and just like it, 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 it slowly awoken, you know, the way I was before I left. If we don't talk about the killing, we're not talking about war. So to the extent that you're willing to talk about it, I would like to go there with you if you're able to. Oh, killing? Yeah. Okay. Physically, he was home. I don't think it was really until, you know, second week being back. Woke up in the middle of the night getting choked. And so I was drinking a lot. I would drink a lot, smoke a lot. And one night, you know, I just felt like I gave up. Or actually, I did give up. I was like, eh, let's just put it all away now. Let's just put it all away. I almost want to make a sign that says, do not enlist, do not enlist. You have a chance to die. Do not believe what they say. They are liars. I don't want to be a fucking dick, but... You're not a dick. I'm just saying, I, I, what's going to fucking change, right? Maybe nothing. Probably nothing. Okay. But you know what will change if I don't do it? Definitely nothing. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Original music by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, Lena Ferguson, and Nick Ward. If you'd like to see my photographs from Sangin and from our road trip, please visit thirdsquad.com. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods.
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.